Greetings, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Patty James, Vice Chair of the Club's Health and Medicine Member-Led Forum and Chair of this program. And now it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Anthony Eiton, MD, JD, and MPH, which is a Master's of Public Health. I have to admit, I had to look it up. Senior Vice President of Healthy Communities, um, he joined the endowment in October of 2009. Prior to his appointment at the endowment, Dr. Eitan served since 2003 as both the director and county health officer for the Alameda County Public Health Department. And in that role, he oversaw the creation of an innovative public health practice designed to eliminate health disparities by tackling the root causes of poor health that limit quality of life and lifespan as a primary care physician for the San Francisco Department of Public Health. Dr. Eitan's varied career includes past service as a staff attorney and health policy analyst for the West Coast Regional Office of the Consumers Union, the publisher of Consumer Reports magazine. Dr. Eitan, who has been published in numerous public health and medical publications, is a regular public health lecturer and keynote speaker at conferences across the nation. He earned his bachelor's in neuropsychology, neurophysiology, pardon me, with honors from McGill, McGill University in Montreal, Quebec. His JD, Quebec, correct, Dr. Eitan? Quebec. His JD at the University of California, Berkeley's uh, Bolt. Hall School of Law, and his medical degree from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Let's welcome Dr. Eiton. Thank you very much, Patty. That was a very nice introduction. Um, <clears throat> it's a small room, and normally I like a lot of questions in small rooms, um, but because of the format we have tonight, we're going to have to save the questions to the end. Um, but, uh, you know, Keep them uh, in your head. I like really difficult, complicated, and sometimes obnoxious questions. So I'm just going to start right into this and um, appreciate being here tonight. Uh, there's a lot of material here um, that is, I, I think is actually fairly easy to understand. But if I'm mistaken, ask me. Um, I'm very much open to your uh, uh, curiosity on what it is you're seeing. So I want to start with the conclusions. I'm a lawyer, and in law school, they tell you always get your conclusions out there early because you may get cut off by the judge or whatever, and you want to be able to make your case. And so one of the key conclusions in this work is health does not equal health care. And this is probably one of the most important conclusions because in this country, we default to health care almost immediately when we're thinking about health, and that is problematic. Where you live matters and it matters a lot. And I'm going to try to prove that to you using um, actually quite a bit of data, but again, data that's fairly accessible that you should be able to uh, comprehend fairly easily. A second conclusion is that health is political. And that P looks like that for a reason. The P is a small P. It's not partisan political. We're not talking about Republicans and Democrats. We're talking about a definition of politics, which is the struggle over the allocation of scarce and precious resources. And in the case of health, particularly community health, those scarce and precious resources may be things as simple as a park or a grocery store. And who gets those and a regular, reliable access to those amenities really depends on the level of the political power of that community. And so health is political, and I'm going to try to prove that to you too. But I'm going to start by provoking you, I hope. Um, I'm going to read you a quote 
and then I'm going to let you stare at it for a while, then I'm going to tell you who said it. I will say then that I am not, nor ever have been, in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. That I am not, nor, nor ever have been, in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. And I will say in addition to this that there is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid, forbid the two races living together on terms of social and political equality. And inasmuch as they cannot so live, while they do remain together, there must be the position of superior and inferior. And I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having a superior position assigned to the white race. Now, in a normal sort of exchange, I would ask you who said that, but I'm not going to ask you that. I'm just going to tell you. Uh, that was Abraham Lincoln. And some of you guessed it, so I saw some, some lights go off in your eyes. And and the other question I would ask you is, uh, you know, who's been to the Lincoln Memorial and what's carved into granite at the Lincoln Memorial? Well, I'll tell you. The second inaugural address and the Gettysburg Address. Those words I read to you earlier are not carved into granite at the Lincoln Memorial. But it's very clear that Lincoln was a white supremacist um, and an avowed white supremacist. And he made it very clear that this was his position. He made those statements that I read to you in 1858 in a public debate when he was running for Senate. I'm going to get back to why that's important in a minute. But first, I'm going to tell you a little bit about place and a little story about me. I grew up in a city. Um, you already heard I went to um, college at McGill in uh, Montreal, Canada, a city that is a, an island. It's an old volcano that sits in the middle of a river, and it's a very beautiful cosmopolitan city. It hosted the Olympic Games in 1976 and the World's Fair in 1967. It's got multiple uh, beautiful ethnic restaurants and parks and outdoor cafes. And I grew up there in the 60s, 70s, and 80s with two brothers, uh, one of whom became a lawyer, another one a uh, university professor, and I became a doctor. Um, Canada is a very unique place. Uh, I didn't think so when I was growing up there, uh, but then I spent a little bit of time um, outside of Canada, and it became very apparent to me. Canada has a strong social compact. And what I mean by social compact is that there are a series of guarantees that the government invests in because it realizes that all people need these investments in order to navigate healthy opportunity. It's not really even a question. Everybody needs universal health care. In Canada, there's universal dental care up until the age of 10. There's universal child care. There's uh, paid sick leave and guaranteed vacation for all employment. Uh, they're very high-quality, uh, subsidized post-secondary education. As I said, I went to McGill University, which we call the Harvard of the North. Uh, I went to McGill for free. And in fact, I got paid to go to McGill. I got a scholarship that paid for more than my tuition. And Canada also has a deep investment in parks and uh, civic infrastructure so that um, the kind of thing that you would pay 10000 a year to join at a country club here, you get in Canada for free. Uh, it's, it's in the community. In 1985, I left Canada, um, not entirely sure why, but left Canada – um, to go to medical school um, at Johns Hopkins in East Baltimore, Maryland. I was told that Hopkins was the best medical school in the world. And, in fact, they have a saying at Hopkins, which is, we may not be the best, but there's nobody better. 
And so I thought, okay, best medical school in the world. This is the place. This is the citadel of health. I'm going to learn everything I need to learn about health. And walking immediately outside the hospital at Johns Hopkins, this is what you see. I mean, you literally don't have to, you know, even take 10 steps. This is what you walk into uh, in East Baltimore. And I was shocked by this. I had never seen anything like it. I had no context for it. In fact, I was being toured around by an upperclassman through East Baltimore, and he saw this look of kind of shock on my face, and he said, what's wrong with you? And I, I managed to stammer out something like, when was there a war here? I, I, I just, I, to me, this looked like Beirut. This was the mid-'80s, and in the news was you know these bombed-out buildings in Beirut. And here I was coming to medical school, and I was landing in something that looked like Beirut. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He looked at me with this look of utter disdain, and he said, what do you expect? It's the inner city. And I thought, I'm really in a different place. I'm supposed to expect this. This is a norm. This is okay. And they've got a name for it. They call it the inner city. And I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't embrace that. I, it felt like that was so fundamentally wrong. And I wondered, what if I had grown up in East Baltimore? <clears throat> this kid did not build that environment, yet this kid has to navigate that environment every single day of his life, day in, day out. And the message to this kid is that you do not matter. And I'm going to talk a little bit about how that changes people's physiology. People internalize that messaging, and it changes how their body functions and not just how their body functions, how their genes express themselves. But I'll get back to that later. And Baltimore blew up in what people described as an insurrection, a riot, not too long ago. And anybody who spent any time in Baltimore, like I did, would have seen that this is entirely inevitable. In fact, Baltimore has been, to my mind, a roiling insurrection for 30, maybe even 40 years. And it's not just Baltimore. Time magazine asked the same question. They said, what's really changed uh, in Baltimore? And this is not about Baltimore. This is about the structures that create Baltimores. And it's not just Baltimore. If I had more time, I'd ask you where this is. You don't know where it is, unless some of you are from Indiana. Anybody from Indiana in the room? No? In, no? Oh. In, okay. So this particular part of Indiana, Scott County, Indiana, has uh, got a big distinction. It's got the, a higher uh, HIV incidence rate than sub-Saharan Africa. And it is also 98% white. Scott County, Indiana is kind of one of the epicenters of this phenomenon that you're going to hear about if you haven't heard about it yet. You're going to hear about it from me in a few minutes. Uh, that's been referred to as deaths of despair. This is a profound um, spike. Uh, it's actually this epidemic of premature death happening in working-class white America. Uh, it's sometimes described as an opiate crisis. It's absolutely much more than an opiate crisis, and we'll talk about this. But I want to set this up for you because I showed you East Baltimore, and I want to propose to you that this is exactly the same thing. This is the white side of the coin of income inequality. Fundamental drivers of what's happening, creating an HIV and hepatitis C epidemic in 98% white Scott County, Indiana, are exactly the same drivers that are happening in East Baltimore. 
And it's a fundamental realization by people living in those communities that the American dream has slipped from their grasp. And they have lost hope. And they have turned against themselves. And that's not their fault. That's because of what we have constructed for them in terms of an environment. But let's move on. The big question is, what is America's social compact? Do we even have one? We have social security for some. I mean, you look at the history of it. It excluded agricultural workers. It excluded domestic workers who happen to be what? Black. We have Medicare, which you know ostensibly takes care of most of the medical needs of people over the age of 65. But we don't have universal health care. We don't have universal child care. We don't have guaranteed sick leave. We don't have dental care. We don't have highly subsidized post-secondary education. Most developed Western countries have some aspect of a basket of social benefits that are designed essentially to create a platform for people to be able to pursue opportunity. In this country, we do not have that. And we seem to be, to the extent that we have a tattered one, we seem to be intent on destroying what's left of it. And it's having profound consequences, health consequences. So after spending some time in East Baltimore, this question started to incubate in my head, which is when it comes to health in America, which was a new country for me, does your zip code matter more than your genetic code? And I spent essentially the rest of my career trying to prove that. So I ended up in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. For those of you who haven't flown over San Francisco recently or aren't used to looking at aerial maps, that's San Francisco. This is Alameda County, which is a huge county shaped like a boot, a boot that we argue was trying to crush San Francisco but has not been successful as of yet. I'm showing you this because I'm going to show you a couple of maps. I became the health officer in Alameda County. When you're the health officer, you are the registrar of all births and deaths. And that's a, it's a wonderful function for data junkies like me because I had control over a database of 20,000 new births every year and 10,000 deaths. And when you put it all together into a huge database, we had close to half a million death certificates in a database. And on a death certificate, you can tell what somebody died of, how old they were when they died, their race, ethnicity, and where they lived. And those four pieces of data across hundreds of thousands of death certificates, paint a pretty compelling picture of how death is patterned in a place. And so that's what we set about trying to do, to paint that picture. The first thing that we did is that we went back in time. We wanted to look at um, how long people were living over time in Alameda County. And when you do that, you can only talk about whites and blacks. You can't can't talk about Latinos, you can't talk about Asians, you can't talk about Native Americans, you can't talk about anything else. Why? Because the census is your denominator. And the census didn't start talking about other groups other than white and black in this country until 1990. So if you wanted to go back before 1990, you could only talk about white, black, and other. And other was basically everybody else who ostensibly wasn't white and black, which was sort of not a terribly helpful category. So we went back, we wanted to go back to 1950, so we went back to the mid-1950s, uh, there was some flood apparently in Alameda County in the mid-50s that wiped out the, the office of the recorder, so it cleaned out some death certificates, but when you go back in the early 1950s, um, and what I'm showing you now are life expectancy for whites and blacks, um, the upper line are whites and the lower line are African Americans, these lines crossed in the 1950s, 
Um, African-Americans actually lived longer than whites in Alameda County in the early 1950s. And there's a reason for that, we think. Um, I'll give you a little hint, and that is that African-Americans are pretty much immigrants to California um, around World War II and the industries associated with World War II. And immigrants tend to be healthier than the native-born populations. And then over time, as they acculturate, their health gets worse. Um, But anyhow, we can talk about that later. So what we saw is that in 1960, the life expectancy difference between whites and blacks in Alameda County was 2.3 years. 20 years later, that difference had more than doubled to approaching five years. And 45 years later, it had almost quadrupled to approaching eight years. And this is during a time of revolutionary change in healthcare. This is CAT scans, MRIs, PET scans, minimally invasive surgery, pharmaceutical wonder drugs, all of these things that in the sort of the common discourse were thought to be uh, this revolutionary uh, set of, of tools to allow us to live longer. And in fact, life expectancy is increasing for whites and blacks during this time, but the gap is growing and growing substantially. And it was growing actually on my watch. I used to say that if there was real accountability about this data, I should have been fired. But in fact, I ended up having to sort of hold myself accountable on the pages of the newspaper because nobody else was holding me accountable for this difference. Well, the other thing you can do with death certificates, and again, I'm a data junkie, so you know, bring me death and I'm happy, um, is that you can actually map the boot. So here's Alameda County, um, and what you're seeing in those divisions are census tracts, which are the closest thing we have to neighborhoods. There are about 150 of them in, in Alameda County, roughly 10,000 people per census tract, Um, And what we did is calculate, on average, how long somebody could expect to live in their neighborhood, with a neighborhood being represented by a census tract. And those green areas are where people can expect to live routinely over 80 years. The red areas, people can only expect to live about 74 years. And the yellow are between 74 and 80 years. And when we first did this, I had a room full of of very bright, one of the nice things about working in the Bay Area is you get extremely well-educated people to help you with these things. So I had all these Harvard epidemiologists and Berkeley epidemiologists sitting in a room. They told me, I don't bother doing this. It's going to look like a Christmas tree. It's a waste of time. And then when we did it, I had this Harvard-trained epidemiologist running down the hall with this waving this map saying, you'll never guess what we found. And I thought, I think I'll guess because I spent time in East Baltimore. That's why I wanted to do this. There are concentrated areas in Alameda County of premature death. This map ended up on the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle, and I started getting calls from legislators asking me what bill they needed to write to essentially reverse this, which was very interesting because I had no idea. Um, But one of the other things people would say to me is that, oh, I don't want to live in Alameda County. It seems like a really inequitable place. And I thought, well, that's not right. So we started looking around the country. Uh, We took our Alameda County map, and then I had to go back to Baltimore and do the same analysis. Baltimore has neighborhoods where life expectancy on average is 58 years. And other neighborhoods where life expectancy is in the high 80s. Um, We went to Cuyahoga County, Cleveland, to New York City, to um, King County in Seattle, to Los Angeles, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Boston, Philadelphia, San Antonio, everywhere we looked. And we're still looking you find life expectancy differences on the order of 10, 15, 20, 25, in one case, 30 years in the same city. And these are fixed differences. These are not fluctuating. These are differences that you can take to the bank. 
And that is not because of the people in these places. It's because of how we structure opportunity in this country. It's this is the pattern of American health. This is how we lay out opportunity. We've done the analysis for the entire state of California. So everybody in this room, you can go to our website and tap in your address and it'll tell you how long you're going to live. And you can take that information and, you know, negotiate, you know, whatever you need to negotiate with your spouse or your children in terms of what you're going to leave them and when you're going to do it. Uh, But it's very good information. The other thing you can do with your data junkie, like me, is take the life expectancy map and go to the census and look at income, look at household income in this case at the census tract level. And then you do a simple bivariate correlation, which is a fancy way of saying you put on life expectancy on one axis and poverty or income on the other axis. And each of those blue dots is a neighborhood in Alameda County. And as you move from left to right, you're moving from relatively wealthy neighborhoods to relatively poor neighborhoods. And you see that life gets correspondingly shorter. This is the death tax that people pay in Alameda County for living in a low-income neighborhood. And it's graded all the way along. People living in slightly less wealthy neighborhoods live slightly less long. So we're all on this. In fact, we did this for the entire San Francisco Bay Area. We did it for the whole state of California. Um, But you can't put this on the front page of the newspaper because nobody knows what the heck they're looking at. So we had to monetize the slope of that line. This is what we did for the Bay Area. Translated the the rate of fall of that line to show that every additional $12,500 of household income buys you a year of life in the San Francisco Bay Area. That's what we are worth. And so I encourage people, you know, when they're negotiating raises, this is the kind of information you need to bring to the table. You know, I need two years, boss. I've been working hard. And it's like, Tony, I don't know. You're looking like six months to me, tops. Okay, so I threw this data in because I think it's really interesting. <clears throat> There's a, a researcher by the name of Raj Chetty and some colleagues uh, over at Berkeley, uh, Nathan Hendren and others, who for some reason, I don't know how they did it. I mean, for people who are data junkies like me, you, you worship this kind of thing. Uh, they managed to get their hands on 50 million tax records from the Treasury Department, um, probably including most of the people in this room again. And they're able to use those tax records to actually calculate social and economic mobility in the United States. And what they found is that um, social, mobility in United, social and economic mobility in the United States is actually relatively low. Uh, the likelihood of going from the lowest quintile in the income distribution to the highest quintile in this country is about 7.5%, which is quite low. In Canada, it's almost twice that. And so they started saying, if you want the American dream, move to Canada. Uh, the American dream is, is largely dead. People do not move from their socioeconomic classes easily. And regionally, it's very different. Um, this is a, a, their map, which shows regional differences in economic mobility across the United States. In the southeastern United States, about 4.5% likelihood of moving from the lowest quintile to the highest quintile. In the San Jose and the Silicon Valley, it's actually pretty good, almost 13%, almost Canada, uh, you know, in the Bay Area. Uh, the point is that there are dramatic regional differences, and um, this is a very constructive use of big data to actually answer a fundamental question about how, how much life is there in the American dream, and the answer is not very much. Uh, this is something that they did for us looking at just at the Bay Area. San Francisco is actually quite high, 18.5% higher than Canada. 
Uh, Santa Clara County is high. Alameda County, not as high, but still much higher than the average in the United States. Okay, so one of the things that used to happen to me a lot is that, you know, because I, you know, I advertise the fact that I'm Canadian. The fact is I was actually born in the United States. I just, my parents just took me to Canada at a very young age. Um, so I was able to come back as, a, as an American. But people would always say to me, Tony, you're a really nice guy. But let's face it, you're Canadian. And therefore, you don't understand America. And America is a beautiful, loving, generous country that invites all of these immigrants from all over the world, the tired, the poor, the huddled masses. They're sick. They come here with their diseases, and we nurture them and expose them to opportunity. They get healthy and strong, and then they become, you know, just like us. You know, they live long, healthy lives. And that's exactly false. It's, it's, I, so I had to make a whole bunch of slides about it. Um, Time Magazine, who is my friend on these issues, seems to, you know, parallel these questions and asks, you know, like, okay, how healthy are we really? Well, one of the things that they, um, you've probably all seen, we all know that we're the big spenders on healthcare. So this is per capita spending of so-called OECD countries, developed countries from around the world. And whenever you put the U.S. on the graphic with everybody else, you have to actually change the axis to fit the U.S. on with everybody else because we spend twice as much as the OECD average on a basis on healthcare. As a result of all that spending, we don't get a lot of bang for our buck. We should be up here. We're down there. Um, so we don't get a lot of health for all the money that we're spending. We all know that. That's Well, most of us know that. Um, it's fairly well known. What's not as well known is this. These are two women, one called Lauren Taylor, the other one Elizabeth Bradley at Yale and Harvard, respectively, who actually are health services researchers who did an analysis that took the per capita spending on health care, which is in the blue, looked at all OECD countries, but then added to that per capita spending on social services and social benefits. And what they found is that when you do that, the U.S. is no longer the big spender. We're actually kind of smack dab in the middle of the pack. What they also found is that spending on social services and benefits gets you better health. So we literally have the accent on the wrong syllable. And that red spending is our social contract. So they found that in OECD countries, every $2 spent on social services as opposed to $2 to 1 ratio in social service spending to health spending is the recipe for better health outcomes. U.S. ratio is $0.55 cents for every dollar of health spending. So this is – we know this. If you want better health, don't spend it on health care. Spend it on prevention. Spend it on those things that anticipate people's needs and provide them the platform that they need to be able to pursue opportunity. The whole world is telling us that. Yet we're having the current debate that we're having right at this moment in this country about health care. There's something wrong with our critical thinking skills. Okay, so people told me, you know, you don't understand America. You know, if you took out all of these immigrants and people of color, you would see that our health statistics are great. I mean, they're really number one. We're number one. So I said, okay, let's make some slides about that. The U.S. white life expectancy is about 78.8 years as of this moment. I rounded it up to 79 years. Miss Qatar, Costa Rica, and Nauru. Yay! 
U.S. whites are living shorter lives than Belgium, Chile, Denmark, Lebanon, Slovenia, Austria, Finland, Germany, Greece, Ireland, Malta, Netherlands, Portugal, the U.K., Canada, Cyprus, France, Iceland, Israel, South Korea, Luxembourg, Monaco, New Zealand, Norway, Sweden, Andorra, Australia, Italy, San Marino, Singapore, Spain, Switzerland, and Japan. 33 countries in the world have longer life expectancy than U.S. whites. In 1990, there were only 17. U.S. white life expectancy is plummeting against the world. It is plummeting. Don't believe me. Believe the Institute of Medicine, or what is now called the National Academies of Medicine. In 2013, they published this report. They entitled it Shorter Lives, Poorer Health. You know, with a title like that, the news ain't going to be good. This was their conclusion. The panel was struck by the gravity of its findings. For many years, Americans have been dying at younger ages than people in almost all other high-income countries. This disadvantage has been getting worse for three decades, especially among women. The U.S. health disadvantage cannot, cannot be fully explained by health disparities that exist among people who are uninsured or poor, as important as these issues are. Several studies are now suggesting that even advantaged Americans, those who are white, insured, college-educated, or upper-income, are in worse health than similar individuals in other countries. That's the Institute of Medicine. This is PBS. Why are so many white Americans dying young? This is the Wall Street Journal. Life expectancy for white women declines in the U.S., this is, I don't know who that is, deaths of despair, overdoses, drinking suicides, hits whites. So some of you, hopefully, many of you, this is a fairly erudite crowd, have been following this deaths of despair situation. It was um, publicized by these, and it still irritates me, but there are two economists at Princeton. I'm the son of an economist, so I hate economists, although I love my father. Um, <laughs> But it irritates me that public health people have been talking about this for a decade. We started talking about this in 2005. But it wasn't until a Princeton economist who won the Nobel Prize and, you know, is a fairly good economist and his wife, uh, who also um, is an extremely good economist, started publicizing these so-called deaths of despair um, that it got in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post and uh, PBS. It's everywhere uh, today. Uh, in the Washington Post. There's a big story that delves into uh, their research. And what they found uh, is something that many of us have been talking about for a long time, but they're economists, so people actually listen to them. And they published this study, which looked at mortality rates. And they looked at virtually every comparison group they could find um, around the world, the United States. And when you do research on disparities or mortality, uh, the the overwhelming pattern of mortality is year-to-year declines. Uh, in fact, over the past 100 years, there have only been two times when U.S. Uh, mortality rates or life expectancy have essentially changed direction. One was the Civil War. The other was the U.S. AIDS epidemic. And what they found is declining patterns of mortality for virtually every population everywhere else in the world except for U.S. whites. Or that red line there. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Listen to thousands of our podcasts on iTunes or Google Play. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 450 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. And now, back to our program.
And this is a, a very interesting phenomenon uh, because some people are describing it as an opiate epidemic. Others are describing it as sort of like deaths of despair. We have an article coming out in the Journal of the American Medical Association where we call them stress-related deaths. We think the fundamental drivers here are what I was telling you about in Scott County, Indiana, people losing hope and losing their grasp on the American dream. And people see it. They see it very clearly. They understand what's happening to them, and it turns inward, and it changes how they behave, and it changes their physiology. I'm going to talk about how that happens in a minute. We did a study looking at the same phenomenon in the southern Central Valley where it's happened to be represented by the um, Republican second um, uh, majority, I forget what his title is, the majority leader, uh, Kevin McCarthy. His district um, shows a 40% increase in white working class mortality over the past 20 years. This population will be devastated by um, undoing the Affordable Care Act because one of the things the Affordable Care Act guarantees is access to mental health care, uh, substance abuse treatment, and a whole host of related services that this population is crying out for. Uh, this will be a crisis that will be exacerbated by pulling the rug out from underneath them. This is the map of California. This is also in our study that uh, those dark blue uh, counties have the highest rates of increase of white mortality. So the sort of the rural white north is in profound despair. The Central Valley, profound despair. The coasts in the Bay Area, life expectancy for whites around here, going down. Or, or, excuse me. Life expectancy for whites around here going up, mortality rates going down. These are two different states. What's happening in the rural north and in the Central Valley is very different from what's happening um, in the coastal area, in the L.A. area. And we're in the middle. There's been working on this day in, day out, trying to understand what is happening to these populations. I argue... It's the same thing that we saw in Baltimore and have been seeing for many years. Um, it's just manifesting itself now. Um, of those counties with increasing white mortality rates, there are 25 of them. Um, 23 of the 25 that voted for Trump have increasing white mortality rates. Uh, again, you've, you're talking about very different states, what's happening in that part of California and what's happening in the rest of California. Okay, so I'm going to kind of start going to rapid fire now. If you think that previous part was fast, this is really fast. So the California Endowment, um, we are trying to shout this from a mountaintop. We want people to understand that what produces health is not just health care and individual behavior. That the context in which we place people has a profound impact on their health status, and we can predict it. I like to say that our policy is as lethal as any knife or any gun. We are constructing environments, incubators of stress, that are killing people predictably. And we know better because the rest of the world has shown us how not to do that. We have decided to do it. So these are real zip codes, real life expectancies, real zip codes, real high school graduation rates. When Sacramento built out its new airport terminal, we knew all the legislators flew through there, so we decided to have a conversation with them on the walls of the new airport. They saw it because they started calling me, asking me why I was decreasing property values in their districts. This is the Metreon building a few years ago when we had the American Public Health Association meeting here. We literally festooned the building with these messages. This is the governor's office. Uh, where he was nice enough to let us put that out there for several months uh, to have a conversation. It stimulated a lot of conversation. 
So fundamentally, what we know about healthcare uh, as the source of health is is false. It's the the conventional wisdom is just false. It's it's terribly wrong. Eighty percent of what influences your health and your life expectancy happens outside the doctor's office. Let me explain to you how this happens. When you put people in places like East Baltimore or East Oakland or Bayview Hunters Point or Scott County, Indiana, you essentially have created an incubator of chronic stress. People are living in communities where they have risk galore and and a paltry set of resources. That balance of risk and resources is what creates stress. Now, stress operates physiologically by the brain perceiving the stressor, which sends a message to the pituitary gland, which sends a message to the adrenal glands, which release a cascade of hormones, amongst which is cortisol. In the short term, which is the blue, cortisol is good for you uh, in acute stress. It stimulates your cardiac output. It rallies glucose for your muscles and your brain to be able to respond. It enhances your immune functions. It turns down your inflammatory functions. And it stimulates growth of neurons in your prefrontal cortex and your hippocampus, which are critical for what's called executive function, which is my wife uh, succinctly summed up the other night, is really about the ability to do triage. It's the ability to make decisions between short-term, intermediate-term, and long-term issues and come to a sort of the right kind of um, constellation of, of strategies. Now, when you're in the red, think about people living in East Baltimore and Scott County as essentially bathed in cortisol, constantly essentially awash in cortisol because of this imbalance between risk and resources. And so when you're in the red... Cortisol has the almost exact opposite effect. It stimulates hypertension and cardiovascular disease independent of your behavior. So you can still exercise and eat right and still watch your blood pressure go up because of this chronic stress. It stimulates glucose intolerance and insulin resistance, which is the precursor for diabetes and obesity. It causes your immune system to go down, so you're more prone to infection. It causes your inflammatory systems to go up, so you're more prone to essentially that weathering effect of constant inflammation. And it causes atrophy and cell death in that same part of the brain that I said was critical for people who are engaged in executive function or day-to-day triage. So that the ability to actually navigate this stressful environment is actually decreased because of the chronic cortisol circulation. So people living in low-income communities are living in incubators of chronic stress. So when you see health disparities, differences in outcomes, you're only seeing the tip of the iceberg. You're not seeing, essentially, the fundamental policy drivers of those disparities. Okay, I'm hoping this will work. It's working. Just watch it. What determines how long we'll live? Is it what we do? Is it who we are? Actually, when it comes to predicting how long you'll live, your zip code is more important than your genetic code. Here's how this works. Meet Deb and Maria. They both have jobs. They're around the same age. They're both married, and they both have two kids. Deb lives in A-Town, while Maria lives in Beeville, less than one mile away. They're similar in so many ways. But here's the thing. On average, residents of Beeville will die more than 15 years sooner than the residents of A-Town. Why? Because where you live is about more than just your address. It's about your opportunities. 
For example, Deb and Maria's access to healthy options is really different. In A-Town, Deb's family is surrounded by healthy food options, including farmer's markets, specialty shops, and grocery stores. The air in A-Town is cleaner and fresher, and there are lots of safe, clean parks where Deb can exercise and her children can play. A-Town has good public schools for Deb's kids and easy access to emergency and preventive health care. On the other hand, Beeville has broken, badly lit sidewalks, and the parks are unsafe. The air is filled with truck exhausts from the nearby highway. And for food options, Maria's only choices are Beeville's many liquor stores, fast food places, or convenience stores. The schools in Beeville are overcrowded and under-supported. And even if Maria can get her kids into better schools far away, she needs to figure out how to get them there without access to a car. So for Maria, having to juggle so much to find healthy options can be an overwhelming source of chronic stress, which is a serious health risk factor. In fact, for all the residents of Beville, chronic stress drives health problems like obesity, diabetes, asthma, and heart disease. How did A-Town and Beville get so different? Well, in many cases in cities and towns across California, the root cause was racial and economic discrimination. Over the generations, poor white people and people of color were pushed to less desirable parts of town. Where banks refused to lend money, businesses left, jobs too, schools declined, and the neighborhood crumbled. Everyone who could move away did. And what's more, when communities like A-Town and Beeville are so unequal, Beeville isn't the only one that suffers. Because it turns out that not only is your zip code a predictor of how long you'll live, so is what country you live in. Countries with the greatest income inequality have the lowest life expectancy. So even Americans like Deb, who are white, insured, college-educated, and upper-income, die younger than their peers in other countries. In fact, our life expectancy is 43rd in the world, and that number is slipping. In the end, our biggest health risk may actually be inequality, and extreme inequality hurts us all. So what do we do? Well, if we're all going to be healthier, we don't just need to help the folks in Beeville beat the odds. We need to change the odds for everyone. And that's what we're doing. There's a movement happening. We're Californians. We don't follow. We lead. We are building the power to make health happen in communities across the state. We are coming together to build one California, a smarter, more inclusive and equitable state that creates health and opportunity for all of us. Join us. To learn more, visit buildinghealthycommunities.org. That was narrated by George Takei. Uh, was very kind to do that uh, for us and, and was able to summarize everything I said earlier in, in four minutes. So I appreciate that too. So I'm going to conclude here by giving you a sense of sort of how we're trying to change the status quo. First, I want to offer you a framework. Don't try to read all this. I'm just going to walk you through it. This is premature death, premature mortality. I should probably take this closer to me. Premature mortality here. This is driven by disease and injury, which is driven by risk risk factors, and risk behaviors. 
And what we try to do currently is we try to change risk and disease trajectories with healthcare. We try to tinker with people's genes, which never works. And we try to change what people know, uh, primarily with pamphlets and brochures. And this is the so-called medical model, um, which is kind of the standard American way of approaching these things. We argue that this is true but insufficient. You also have to look upstream at what is creating all this demand on the healthcare delivery system. And we argue that there are social inequities, um, which is just a fancy sociological way of saying that there are places where you have essentially incubators of chronic stress. And it's not just physical places. You also have uh, populations that are not geographically concentrated together. You have LGBTQ populations. You have immigrant populations. You have disabled populations that have been systemically discriminated against so that they have to navigate a much more stressful and barrier-filled world. And that's driven essentially by policies and practices of institutions and, and primarily government but also corporations. And that fundamentally that is being driven by a narrative. And this is why I started with that first slide about Abraham Lincoln because there is a predominant old narrative in this country that some people matter and some people don't. And that is a narrative of exclusion. And you saw it beautifully manifest in this most recent presidential election where the the narrative coming from our current president was that essentially we need to fear the future. There are hordes of subhuman um, populations that are competing for resources that are our resources. And this is a zero-sum competition, and we need to get back to the past. And so there's a very conscious effort to dehumanize the populations that the policies are then going to punish uh, for being less worthy. And the competing narrative is a narrative of inclusion, which says we can't afford to waste any of our human talent and human capital. That the future is bright if we're all rowing in the same direction. And let's be realistic. The past was not equitable. And it's got us to where we are here today. So those two narratives are in competition with one another. And the only question is, is which one wins? Because the policy flows from that. And then the consequences of that policy flow from that. And among those consequences are profound health consequences, including, including shortened lives. So we argue that the world of health disparities lives downstream in the healthcare delivery system. The world of health inequities lives upstream. You can take the word health out and just talk about inequities producing disparities. Or if you're simple-minded like me, you talk about conditions producing consequences. And we spend far too much money, time, effort, and attention, quite frankly, in the consequence management world. The downstream consequences aren't just in health. You see them in educational outcomes with school absence and truancy leading to grade failure, leading to dropout, which is the single most important social determinant of health. We argue spend less time down here, more time figuring out what we can do up here at the California Endowment. Our effort in building healthy communities has simplified what's happening upstream. We talk about place, policy, and narrative. So if you want to change what's happening downstream, you actually have to work in low-income communities and build social, political, and economic power in a critical mass of people living in those communities so that they can participate in decision-making that shapes their environment. We think that that's not sufficient. You build that power, but you also have to look at the policies and ultimately the narrative that shapes those policies because you have to change that narrative. Health is not just health care. 
And the people who know most about health aren't necessarily people wearing white jackets with stethoscopes around their necks. More often, it's young people trying to navigate policy-prescribed barriers in their communities, in their schools, in their parks, in the criminal justice system. These are policy barriers that we construct to try to essentially create obstacles for people who we consider to be less valuable um, than others. So very simply, the medical model says bad behavior produces disease, produces premature death. The socio-ecological model says bad societal behavior produces policies and practices that create communities that are on life support. And we spend a lot of money trying to prevent death in emergency rooms, way more than anybody else. We try to change the course of disease with clinical care and 15-minute interventions. We try to change people's behavior with brochures. Um, We argue that all that is important, but that's a $3 trillion enterprise. Um, We also need to be looking at building power and leadership in a critical mass of people in communities so they can more effectively participate in these decisions that so shape their lives, um, looking at the health consequences of non-health policies and looking at fortifying health policies and finally changing the narrative. We call that in our world the drivers of change. These are the things that we're investing a billion dollars in in California uh, over the next 10 years. Um, You can put in your address at this website and start thinking about the implications of where you live, where your family lives, where your neighbors live, where your children are growing up, and join us uh, in this work. I'm going to stop uh, there. Um, I was going to tell you, if I had more time, about some of the changes that we've seen in California over the past seven years, in part because of what we've invested, but mostly because of the hard, concerted, and focused work of our partners. We've insured five million people in California under the Affordable Care Act and the expansion of Medicaid. That is huge, more than any other state. It's a huge proportion of all of the people who have been insured in this country under the Affordable Care Act, including uh, we've brought 260,000 undocumented children into full-scope Medi-Cal in this state. We have uh, reduced suspensions and expulsions from schools, which have been disproportionately targeting African-American kids, Native American kids, Latino boys, by 400,000, they're down 40% over the past four years because of policy efforts by people working on these, trying to change these conditions. We've seen about a million people eligible to reclassify their fel- felonies as misdemeanors under Prop 47, which allows them not to have to check the box when they're applying for a job or for housing. Um, and we have hundreds of local policy wins that are making health protective resources so much more accessible to um, young people and families throughout California in our 14 communities across the state. California is on the move. And California is not waiting around for the federal government. Change is happening here. I like to tell people when I go outside of California, I'm from California, so I'm from the future. (laughs) What you see and what I tell you is happening in California will happen to you. Thank you very much. We have some questions, Dr. Eiten. The first one is, how are adverse childhood experience scores brought into the conversation? Yeah, great question. So ACE scores are, are absolutely critical to this work. ACE, ACEs are adverse childhood experiences, which um, is a uh, essentially uh, the product of a study done by a, a Kaiser researcher in San Diego called Vince Folletti, 
who was looking at essentially uh, the correlation between uh, people who had adverse childhood experiences, which may be alcoholic parents, um, uh, divorce uh, in, in, in some cases, and um, other kind of uh, you know, child abuse, and correlating their, the number of those adverse childhood experiences to the uh, number and severity of chronic diseases that they have as adults. And they show this sort of stepwise correlation between adverse childhood experiences and adult chronic disease. And so there are many people now working in the clinical setting trying to identify ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, and mitigate them um, with children. Our sense is that that's absolutely necessary, but our goal is really to work on the environment that produces the stressors that uh, essentially leads to the adversity in the lives of young children and families, particularly low-income children. So we're kind of coming at this from two different directions. Ours is sort of an environmental approach, whereas the clinical approach is more identifying children that have been you know, through adversity and trying to help them with coping uh, mechanisms to mitigate the impacts of their uh, okay. adversity. Thank you. The next question is, we have about four more questions. What social services have the biggest impact of on health, if you could only choose one program to implement, what would it be? Yeah. So thank you for that question, but I hate that question. Um, there's no silver bullet in this work. And we have to just sort of put on our big boy pants and, 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 and sort of recognize that these are complex issues. And they're interactive, they're cumulative, they're synergistic. So you can't pick one thing. However, um, the single most important modifiable social determinant of health is education, by far. Um, so if you're going to just say, I can only do one thing, you know, it's all hands on deck in the education system, particularly early childhood education, you know, to get kids on the right trajectory by third grade so that they're reading, so that they have the social and emotional health and the, and the grit to be able to essentially perform in, in an academic setting and achieve the skills that they need to participate in the 21st century economy. Okay. How much of the solution, money spent on social structures and services, has to come from a state level versus federal level? Essentially, sorry, I can't always read everybody's handwriting. How local are these politics, I believe that's what that's That's a great question. It's, okay. it's a mix. Um, so much of this work is local because the influences on particularly young children and families are, a lot of them have to do with land use, local land use policies. You know, what kinds of – when you think about a child leaving their house in the morning with their mother or father, the first thing they encounter is a neighborhood. And, you know, how they navigate that neighborhood and, – and, and many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with stories where children talk about just the hazards of getting to school, you know, where they can't walk on certain streets, they can't go in certain directions, they have to be in, in groups. So the first environmental concern that people have is the neighborhood that kids have to navigate. So the goal in those neighborhood environments is to – Increase the resources, reduce the risks. You want to change the balance of risk and resources, and that's what we're doing uh, in, in our work. The next environment they generally encounter is a school environment. And how, uh, how sensitive is that school environment to kids that are experiencing high levels of trauma? Are these trauma-informed institutions? Do they have the kind of right protocols to essentially identify kids that are experiencing adversity and, and help them manage it? And then kids that, you know, get, you know, into trouble are going to encounter our human services system, which is largely the criminal justice system and social services and health. And so, again, there we're trying to balance risk and resources and prepare those systems for being uh, – for kids that are highly traumatized. So most of it is local. Um, the funding mechanisms flow generally from the state. 
And there's a federal enabling policy environment that allows the state the flexibility to be able to make the kind of investments that it needs to make um, locally to allow uh, young children and families to be able to thrive. So we need, we need all of these things. But when you ask people to participate in this work, which is what you have to do, you can't do this for people. You have to do this through people. Um, the first place that they recognize as being relevant to their immediate environment are, are local places. And that's why we, we are heavily uh, invested in local organizing. Okay. Um, how do you reconcile up- upward mobility with the rising cost of living rent in the Bay Area? E.g., is it that folks are actually increasing income or are more wealthy people moving here and increasingly less affluent are being priced out and moving to more affordable places that appear less upwardly mobile? Yeah, great question. Um, the answer is that Raj Shetty and his buddies are trying to figure that out right now, uh, you know, by doing much deeper geographical dives with their uh, economic mobility data. Our suspicion is basically that the um, w- when you think about a low-income community, what, what's missing in that low-income community is not money. It's opportunity. People's ability to pursue meaningful opportunity that allows them to essentially make progress and so places that are physically separated from opportunity are the places that suffer the most. The Bay Area, is, it's got pockets of poverty, absolutely, but it's, it's not as physically separated as some other parts of the country. So there are still opportunities, which is why the scores on social and economic mobility are relatively high. There's still the physical possibility to pursue opportunity in your kind of immediate vicinity or near immediate vicinity. By far not perfect. And again, these are aggregate scores. So, you know, while social and economic mobility in the Bay Area is relatively high, um, there's still you could that could mask a lot of immobility uh, in various different pockets, which is why we're going much deeper uh, below counties to look at social and economic mobilities at a sub county, uh, almost down to the census tract level. Okay, we have two more questions and then I'll come up and finish the program, but then do the gavel thing, and and then, but you can stay if there's more questions after that. This next one is is specific to Vallejo, but I think that it would be um, a question that people would be interested in hearing what you think um, could be a solution to this problem. Vallejo has a cement plant being proposed a quarter mile from an elementary school, um, Grace Patterson, and is in a black community, so in Vallejo, I'm sorry about the handwriting. I can't always read it. What advice would you give to the families who are trying to maybe work through not having that happen? So, classic story. I know about this story. Um, power. You got to build the power of people living in that community, and they have to make uh, decision makers highly accountable to that decision. We we just went through this experience in Fresno with this uh, meat rendering plant called the Darling Rendering Plant, which has been there for generations and spews out all kinds of toxins into the community. We just got that plant shut down. When I say we, I'm talking about our partners in Fresno who've been organizing against this for years, and they just got that success, which is a huge win in Fresno. There's no other way. Um, And then... What can people in San Francisco who care about zip code um, inequality do? Well, San Franciscans are doing a lot already, um, particularly up in the legislature and with local policy. Uh, The goal is essentially to reweave our social compact, is to create those kind of policies 
that we know that all people need in order to be healthy and to make sure that you look at those policies with a racial equity lens. Uh, look at the impacts on, on various different populations that have been historically essentially excluded from opportunity intentionally. We can also work hard, which San Francisco does a beautiful job of, of changing the narrative about what is fundamentally important and who are we as San Franciscans, as Californians, as Americans? What do we value? And tell stories and then take those stories into policy that actually helps create equity uh, in our policies. Now, there's, there market forces in San Francisco are ravaging you know, people's ability to live in affordable communities and stay in those communities. And so we have to use the power of government and hold it accountable, essentially to mitigate uh, many of those naked market forces that are essentially doing the exact opposite in San Francisco in ways that, you know, are unprecedented. So while San Francisco does a very good job on narrative, does a very good job on policy, it also is subject to market forces that are uh, orders of magnitude higher than many other communities, which means that we have a higher responsibility to go after those things because those things are tearing people's lives apart and impacting their health. Okay. And if I may, I have a question. So you are six years into this um, tenure. Yeah. I would like to know if you're at a spot where you could have projected the progress that you've made so far. Are you pleased? Or what have you learned? Where do you go from here? Yeah, so our board asks us that question all the time. Um, and, you know, one of the things that they're really impressed with, I mean, I, I, I sort of ran down the list of sort of accomplishments, five million people insured, um, undocumented children covered under full-scope health insurance, uh, you know, a million people eligible to reclassify their felonies, uh, a dramatic drop in school suspensions and expulsions when in the other big states, Texas, New York, uh, you're seeing these, those go up. Um, so our board has said, whatever the heck you're doing, keep doing it. Uh, double down on it, it's working. Uh, we did not expect to see discrete, measurable policy wins of this magnitude this early in this initiative. Now, we were helped by the Obama administration and the Affordable Care Act. We were helped by the Obama administration and the Department of Justice. We were helped by um, progressive leadership in California, much of which came out of San Francisco. So it's not like, you know, we contributed to this, but this is not us. Um, but now we're running into some pretty stiff headwinds, as we all know. We've run smack dab into essentially a reversal of that enabling federal policy environment where we're being attacked on every front. Immigration, uh, Black Lives Matter, healthcare, the environment, everything is under attack. So it's a very different strategy now, because we feel California is making progress and will continue to make progress, um, but now we actually have to defend the progress that we've made and fight rearguard actions basically on every front, which is a very different strategy, um, and we're still coming to terms with what that means. Um, our thanks to Dr. Anthony Eitan today for your comments here today. Thank you very much. It was wonderful. We also thank our audiences here, as well as those listening to the recording. And now, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, commemorating 114 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. Thank you so much. That was great.